And though distance may divide, or routine and time, rendering your space as high as the tide, still the look that holds tight to ends of a flashback. I am rich memory. I am fond intensity, held in place by the mere desire to create it when one comes alive, when our atoms collide with twin flames, one desire, sacred names bathed in fire, bathed in fire, bathed in fire, fire, fire. Still life, pretty and shiny. I could hold its sweetness in my hand, tickle the linchpin, stroke the beautiful danger, a delicate malevolence, the simple and gentle miserable symbol. Hold this opus, the explosive closeness, so focused that I didn't notice the dagger in my back. That was Pesha Anderson, or as she calls herself on stage, Pesha Elaine Anderson one of the three remarkable women we have dubbed the Diva Cats, who shared their wisdom and stories in our last episode. In that conversation, they talked about the different paths that led them to CAT, the nationally recognized community arts training institute at the St. Louis Regional Arts Commission. In this episode, we dig deeper into the CAT story with questions like, what defines a CAT? And what difference can a CAT make in places like Ferguson, and Cherokee Street, and the Peter and Paul Facility for Unhoused Men. From the Center for the Study of Art and Community, this is Change the Story, Change the World. I'm Bill Cleveland. Chapter 4, Reimagining the Village. So, Khan, you've been involved now in putting pen to paper around practice a couple of times. You've got your, your beautiful little book, and the workbook that you've created for Americans for the Arts. So you've forced yourself to sort of answer some of these questions. What's this for? What are we learning here? What have you come up with? Well, I was one of those tigers that the patient was talking about. And the beginning of the year-long journey, one of the assignments was you have to do you have to come up with a research project and you have to get a mentor and you have to check in regularly. And next week, I want to know what it is. <laughs> and uh, I remember the consensus of all the faculty and the people who were there, or the other 11 people, was that you need to write a book and you need to look at where you've been and what you've done. So I welcomed that opportunity to get all of these stories and connections and, you know, all the different parts of my life that had been overlapping, to get them on paper, actually illustrated the book, which surprised the hell out of me. But I, I've been working with this agency since ni- 1999, I guess. And I find it's, it's, it's a continual job to, to figure out with people what does collaboration look like and what does co-creation look like. And to give voice to the fact that transformation happens. And Roseanne reminded me of the tears of transformation that have happened with the community arts training. By the way, Peter and Paul Community Services, the organization with which I work, we are very cat-infused. Former development director, the co-founder of the arts collaborative that I manage, at least four staff members went through cat, but also four of my guys from the arts groups went through cat. And for that 
sort of 360 degree thing to happen is very humbling for me. It's because I kind of feel like I'm at the center of it, but at the same time, stuff started growing and people make a lot of assumptions about what they see or hear when I tell them what I do. They're like, oh, so you, you artists are volunteers, right? No, we're professional artists. Everybody gets paid and they get paid well because that, I won't have it any other way. They think, oh, they say, oh, well, isn't it nice that, that those men are, are able to learn some arts and crafts stuff? No, we don't use paper plates or pipe cleaners. And to Pace's point, we are not trying to help them. They are learning to figure out how they can help themselves. And so the transformation happens at that individual level. It happens at the program level. Once the program directors realize they are creating a more authentic relationship with people through creativity, the relationships that were formed among the men as they began to tell and hear each other's stories, I mean, none of us expected that particular level of intimacy and support. And all of a sudden, they were not people on their own journey out of homelessness or poverty or drug addiction or whatever. They were people working together to help each other. Now, it didn't work for everybody, but the guys that it did work for, they come back. There was one guy after we published our first book, he's, he was recalcitrant, he was defiant, he didn't want to do it. We, we made that book, we bound that book. The day that we put it in his hands, he started to cry and he said, oh my God, I can't wait to show this to my grandmother. So the magic is there and I feel blessed to be that person who can say, this is who I am and this is who we are and we're going to figure out together how we're going to go forward. So one of the things you just described, which is to me, it's kind of home base, which is <laughs> as a species, we do not survive without our capacity to connect to our fellow human beings at many, many, many levels. Basic cooperation, sucker and sustenance that is spiritual, that is physical, that is emotional. And I think probably many of the, of the gentlemen that you interacted with bear some of the consequences of being separated from their connections to their community, to their families, to their peers. What you just described is an intentional recreation of the village, the ritual, the practice of being together in a supportive way where the power of our story together manifests unencumbered. And isn't it amazing when people are given access to it, even though they would say, I don't know anything about this art stuff, right? It's like a magnet. They come right to it. They know what's happening when they're in it. Yeah, I, you know, there's go back and forth between, I want to make some stuff. I want to sell some stuff. I want people to see my stuff. But what keeps them coming back is the commitment to relationship, I think. And I really feel like I do it. Patia does it. Roseanne does it. We hold a space for what it is that we believe. And even if, you know, there's a long dry spell, we hold that space. And people come to count on that. and. Because we can hold the space 
and because people can count on it, that's where what you're talking about, where the village comes from. And, you know, the, the U.S. Department of Arts and Culture, for which I am a cultural agent, imagines what it would be like if all aspects of daily life were infused with arts and culture, so much so that it would be who we are and how we live, not something we do and call it, you know, art group or art class or, you know, art program or whatever. Um, so that's my goal. People being creative, feeling good about themselves and keeping the process going. And if a product happens to come out of it, oh, golly, that's great. So the jackpot of this conversation is for you to share a story that, in a sense, personifies what it is we've been talking about. Is there a story that rises up for you that represents the value of being serious and committed to the work and its potential in community? So my story, the story that I'll share is one that I've shared in our Americans for the Arts workshops on arts-based community development and wanting to be respectful that Oftentimes we're a part of the story, but it's not our story. So I'll do the best that I can to tell my part that I've played in this particular story. And went through my cat class during the time of the uprising that followed Michael Brown's murder. It's important because in St. Louis, that was a before and after moment. This region is completely changed by the events of that summer. Even the feel in the air is different. I would liken it to the way people say America felt different after 9-11, right? There's a different sense of being. So our cat class, we had our first class on uh, August 1st, 2014. On August 8th, 2014, a group of my friends and I, who all lived in the same neighborhood, the cat from 2010, um, myself, another who was in our cat class, one person who ended up being a cat the following year, we had just uh, ended a week-long summer camp called Cherokee Street Reach, making art with young people in the neighborhood for that week. So our cat class was August 1st. We ended our camp August 8th. Mike Brown was murdered August 9th. We had our second class August 11th. Our class was an intensive, so instead of once a month over several months, we were once a week for, you know, three, sometimes four hours while the city and the county was on fire and while activists, artivists were doing all this work, creating responsive pieces, sitting on um, boards and commissions, being citizen journalists, being street medics, you know, this is the fire that our cat class was forged in. And we were such a tight community of people because it was 16 from one neighborhood. And so it was deeply, deeply, deeply impactful. Cherokee Street, where Khan has a studio a block away from where I live, is a commercial district in St. Louis, separated by two wards, surrounded by four neighborhoods, largely black, swiftly gentrifying, or slowly gentrifying, depending on who you ask. Um, so there's all these political and social things happening during the time of this cat class. Our cat class ended in November. 
Um, and shortly thereafter, the decision to not indict the officer who murdered Mike Brown happened. And so we were on fire again. In the midst of all this, in the aftermath of all of this uprising and this unrest, we found ourselves being asked to community care give, right? Can you come to the neighborhood school down the street from Cherokee Street? We don't know what you can do, but can you just come and be present, right? We don't have any money, but if you have just some time. And so we went there and we invited some of the artists who were still on the ground in Ferguson by night, there in this elementary school by day, showing the responsive artwork that they were doing, wearing t-shirts that say unarmed civilian. And these were cats. And so things just snowballed and we formed a group, fire of response and caregiving and, and unrest. So Cherokee Street Reach was born out of cats, out of the uprising, doing what we can do, which was show up for the young people. I know you all feel really strongly about sticking with it, hanging in there for the long haul in this work. So after the fires cooled around Ferguson, what was the legacy of the creative relationships you forged with these young people? Maybe a year and a half later, on Cherokee Street, there was an abandoned lot we used to do some murals. There's still paint on the basketball court right now from that. And people on the street had asked young people, what, what should we do with this lot? And they said, we wanna play basketball. So a basketball court ended up being on a patch of grass and rough and tumble concrete. And it activated, you know, the people in the neighborhood, the young people, the artists, activated that broken down lot space and turned it into something magical. And there weren't, you know, raised garden beds and flowers. It looked like the neighborhood, right? And that's why it was the neighborhood. The neighborhood named it Love Bank Park for the bank shot. Um, this was a big deal because there aren't any basketball hoops on the south side of St. Louis and city parks because of really old racist policies. So, you know, young people would come from all over to, to play, play in this park. But some days we don't know where Street Reach and Love Bank begin and end because they were both born in the aftermath of a socially and economically and a politically changing climate in the region, but specifically on this street because it divides two wards both of the aldermen for those wards on both sides of the street had been serving for 20 years. And in that time, they were both unseated by young progressives who actually helped Love Bank become what it is. One of them, he, um, <laughs> we're, we're actually going to uh, repaint some signs and make some murals up there starting this week. I know he's going to be there. Now, you've been at it for quite a while in your neighborhood. Are, are there young people from Cherokee from the beginning who are still on that journey with you? We started Cherokee Street Reach. We started it because there was a young man on the street. We wanted to, quote unquote, help him, right? And we had all these ideas about how we were going to help him and get him into these different programs. And ultimately, just through the council of people like Regina Martinez, who I mentioned earlier. So full circle, I mean, the circle is more like an infinity loop. We're going to repaint some signs up at Love and do a mural. And um, I got some grant money through some neighborhood organizations. And two of the young people 
who I'm hiring to be art assistants, one of them is this young man who was running around the street six years ago with nothing to do. I'm sure that Roseanne and Khan can both attest to it. You don't really clock out from these kinds of things, right? You don't take your teaching artist or community care or counselor or administrator um, hat or smock off when you go home, right? So the biggest ways that the work has shown up is that it's always present. You get phone calls, you get emails, you're invited to come to this thing. You don't clock out. It's like your partner or your child or your um, parent that you care for. It's omnipresent. It's always kind of over here. That story, I feel like, just really demonstrated other ways that it has overlapped. You know, community care and the politics of the thing and the built environment and these questions about ownership. You know, we talk about in our workshops who made something versus who created it. So, yeah, so I, I yeah, I just love it. Thank you. Great. <laughs> Gone, you got a story? In, in 1990, when I moved here to work with the social service agency after about four years, and I joined the board of Peter and Paul Community Services. And um, in 1998 was my cat year. I was in the second class. I went to the, a board meeting, and Tom Burnham, who was the director of shelter services, was talking about project that he had going on then. We had a single room occupancy hotel in St. Louis that was being renovated by a developer. They were going to take guys from the shelter and move them into this SRO and they could live there for free and they could save their money. And they, as they were working, they would be assigned to a realtor, a banker, a team of people that would help them figure out how they were going to buy a house. It was very ambitious. You know, I'm like, Tom, got to document this. I'm seeing maps. I'm seeing pieces of paper. I'm seeing people on the margins on a three-ring binder paper. And most of us are to the right of the red line. We have a safety net, but the people that you're working with are on the left side. There's a lot less room. There's danger. There's holes on that side of the paper. People fall in those holes. And so this is like a map to me, Tom. We got to, we got to, you know, so maps became a thing for me at that particular point. Sitting here thinking about the, these stories, I realized that all along the way, I've been helping people make maps. You know, the murals are not really murals. They're maps of people, where people live and how people move through this thing we call the social service system or the continuum of care. Mapping and murals and stories and all of these things that were all this that was set in motion by my cat training. I, this is my favorite story of all time, I think. I'm sitting in my studio with six men and I had this, this mapping exercise where, you know, you map your neighborhood where you grew up. You know, here was the corner store, here was the school, here was the church, here was my best friend's house, you know, just you know, or map a place that is special to you or that you can think of right now that you would like to see in a map on a paper. So these guys do this thing, right? And then at the end of my groups, I really like people to share and to reflect and to say, you know, what did we learn from this or what, are, you know, where are we going with this, et cetera. 
And so I, as the guys were telling their stories about their maps, I would hold them up so that everybody else could see. And Mike was a guy who was in the program then, tough guy, drug addict, white guy, construction worker, very conservative, was on and off again about this art stuff, you know? And he had drawn a map of the neighborhood around the shelter, shelters in the basement of a big old um, Gothic looking Catholic church in an old part of St. Louis called Soulard. Uh, lots of, you know, retail and traffic. And as I'm holding it up, I'm looking at the back of this paper and I see this other drawing. And I was like, oh my God, oh my God. And I, I just waited for him to finish talking about what he had drawn on the front. And I dramatically turned it around and I said, Mike, can you talk to us about what you drew on the back of this paper while you were waiting for everybody to be done? And he said, oh yeah, that's the map of my heart. And it said stuff like, I'm kind, I'm a good brother, I am a good worker, I love my country, I lift weights and I you know, feel good about being healthy, just all that stuff. But I started to cry, and then one of the other guys started to cry, and I still have that piece of, you know, copy paper with the map of Mike's heart on it. It's, you know, it's the thing, it's the story, it's why I do the work, because people can learn to map what's in their heart. Wow. Yep, Uh, just a, a small anecdote here. Um, Judy Baca is the sort of the mother queen of muralism in Los Angeles. And one of her seminal projects in what has defined Los Angeles in terms of unhoused people is they have Skid Row. And it is, a, it, it is an extraordinary community, actually, because of its history. And uh, one of the things that they did not have was a way to share information with newcomers about what would be called the the survival network of people, places, agencies, et cetera, all around the area that you could walk to that you would need in order to uh, make your way in in that part of Los Angeles. And she spent a summer with students of hers from UCLA who, needless to say, uh, had not had a lot of experience in that neighborhood. And they interviewed the experts, the people who knew where all the resources were. And then they created a massive mural on the side of a building that basically revealed all the hidden pathways and informal connective tissue and resources that people who are trying to make their way in that part of Los Angeles would need to know in order to to be safe. It's definitely another one of those those wonderful mapping stories. Roseanne, do you have a a saga to share? She talked about the cat that she was in, which was a neighborhood cat, right? Right. Um, Remember? And and, right, so we, we did several of those and the difference was that they were accelerated and that they were people from a specific neighborhood. St. Louis is made up of neighborhoods. and But it was still people who were artists of any discipline and people who were organizers, teachers, activists, uh, social workers together. And 
One of the things that I loved about our trying these things is that we were inventing as we went along. And that's the most fun I have, is inventing as I go along. And we don't know what's going to happen. Again, I go back to this, this notion of, of not being able to control the outcome and that the outcome comes up in the most surprising ways. And in fact, it's because we're working with art and artists and community activists that that happens. The Pink House cat was, was really one of the neighborhood-based cats that was a, almost a micro cat taking place in a particular house in a particular neighborhood. Now, Regina Martinez ran the Pink House, uh, didn't she? You mentioned her earlier. It was kind of like a, a community arts lab, wasn't it? And from every one of those, I learned so much. But I always think at the Pink House, one of our cat fellows was uh, Miss Cindy. And Miss Cindy was doing the work before she had a name for it. She was an elder in the neighborhood. She was very creative. She didn't call herself an artist. We had to tell her she was an artist. And she did wood burning. So she would teach the, the kids in the neighborhood to do wood burning. So it was like, Miss Cindy, you have to do cat with us. We want you with us because we'll learn from you. And in fact, we did. So I always think of Miss Cindy, you know, is, is the person who is an artist. She is intrinsically the community artist. She was the one that had permission to yell at the kids, even though they weren't her kids, because she was an elder. She was the one who was able to show the kids they were created, even though she didn't, she didn't name it that way. You know, at, by the end of Cat, my favorite thing that Cindy would say is, and then I'd say, well, you know, you should call so-and-so. And she'd go, there's a cat for that. And so every time we would talk about the network and, you know, who might be able to partner or collaborate, she'd go, there's a cat for that. So I always think of that. There's a cat for that. Chapter six, Catwise. And this is a perfect segue. So I, I want to finish by giving you all an opportunity to speak very specifically to people who might be listening to this, who are thinking, I do this, or I would like to do this, or, oh, now you're naming a thing that I do. What, what should I keep in mind? What wisdom can you share that you think is seminal to this work? And actually, I'm going to put words in your mouth, Roseanne, because it's one of the ones you speak of a lot and very eloquently that I think is personified in the story you just told, which is with, not for. Could you just talk about that and why that's important in the practice? Patia was talking earlier about this notion of what it means to help, right? And that all of the questions come with that. We want to be useful, but, but it's not about doing something for people. As I said, you know, we don't have the answer. Doing something with a group of people means you're side by side with them. You are succeeding and failing with them. You are listening to each other. You are understanding what needs to happen. When we come someplace and we have a plan, then we are doing something for a community. We're not listening to the community, to the people there. We don't know all the things that are going on underneath the surface because we think we're doing something for people because we decided they needed it. Who are we to decide? When you're working with people, 
you are working side by side. You are listening, you are co-creating, you are co-conceiving, you are collaborating, and the outcome is gonna be so much better and so, so far more powerful than if you come in as a person with a plan. So, you know, one of the things we talk a lot about is this difference between what people name as social practice and what we call community arts. And, and the real difference is, I believe, is that co-creation and co-conception. You know, yeah, art is great if it has a, a social meaning to it, great. Nothing wrong with it, but it's not working with the community. And I think that that's, that, that's intrinsic to the Community Arts Training Institute and to the work itself is this notion of with. Patia, so if a, a person younger than you uh, came to you and said, oh, I'm so inspired by what you do, what would you want to pass on to them? Before you do it, talk to someone who's done it. I wasn't aware of how important that was when I first started, so I made a lot of unnecessary mistakes and errors. I co-created the ruining of relationships before they even got started. <laughs> That's the um, poet in me. I co-created the, <laughs> the ruination. You know, there are uh, mentors and guides and people all around who are willing to assist. And a lot of them want to give young people their space, want to be respectful of you know, people learning things, but they really do want you to ask because they've been doing this a long time. They don't want to see you get hurt or co-create the ruining of relationships before they get started or undo what's already been done, you know, breaking what has already been fixed. So I would say, say, hey, you know, I, I looked you up or I've been watching your work and I just really want to run something by you. You know, if you come with a, an, an open heart and humility and really a desire to learn, then they will pour out a wealth of knowledge that you wouldn't even see coming. Consider on whose shoulders you stand and show gratitude and honor them for that in whatever way that looks like. And be humble and realize that you don't know everything and really demonstrate, you know, that you want to learn. I've called Roseanne. I've picked her brain about stuff. Roseanne used to have the openest of doors in her office at the Regional Arts Commission. Roseanne will always write a check in support or come to your thing. Even if you don't ask for advice, look around and see who's showing up. Roseanne and Mr. Harper, who's her husband, who's a writer. We had an art camp and a street festival over the summer. And here they come, walking down the street in my neighborhood. I'm like, there go Roseanne and Mr. Harvard. They, they some showing up people. So a lot of times they're already in your midst. They're already observing your work. And if you are that open-hearted person, they already know who you are. Thank you. Yes. Con, you got some some wisdom to share? Well, I, I hope there are other resources or organizations or training, education, connecting programs like CAT out there. What it did for me was it set me up to expect something 
But the idea is that you don't expect to control, but what you can't expect to do is engage and to use the tools that you have and the, the, the bridge building or whatever that, that you know how to do, but then you don't, you don't give in to the negative and you don't give up on people. Uh, you just give. And giving that thing that is your creativity, is your, is your, that's your motivation for working with people. And if you're using, using art, it's like people, people have this conception of art as something that they can't, they can't possibly aspire to uh, because artists are lonely creating in their garret and their geniuses. And I can't do that. And community art, art space, community development, engagement, whatever, it takes the art down off the walls. It takes it out of the white boxes and it puts it on the street. And once it's on the street, there's no telling what to expect, but you got to be okay with the fact that you're not going to know what to expect. Most of the time, it's going to be good for everybody, I think. Especially yeah. So uh, I'm going to close by asking a question that can't be answered and giving you almost no time to answer it in. But it's, it really is bringing us full circle. When we started, I asked, how are you? And obviously in the context of this moment in our limbo-infused history. And so I'm going to finish by asking where you see the work moving in to this altered landscape. Where does the work fit in the altered landscape that has emerged around us? Aisha? Um, <laughs> accountability, shifting of power, amplification of marginalized voice, liberation of all oppressed people everywhere, more than I feel like I've ever seen in my 42 years. Where do you see the creative process becoming uh, a part of it? As medium, as conduit, as inspiration, as catharsis, as an example of possibility, as documentation, yeah, as the material, inanimate embodiment of what an artist is. Come on. Oh, I'm going to go back to maps again. I saw myself when you said that as this little red Volkswagen on a giant map, uh, and I'm on the road with everybody else, or maybe I'm in a boat. And, you know, people keep saying, we're all in the same boat. We're going to get through this together. Well, we're not in the same boat, but we are in the same storm. Or... If we're walking on a map, you know, my path is parallel or maybe intersecting with yours. And you just got to keep going. You just got to keep going. And I'm cautiously optimistic that we are going to be okay and that we're going to create something that we can't even imagine what it's going to look like. And I think that art creates a capacity. Not Art doesn't create the mass. It creates the capacity for things to come. And I also believe that art always has and does and always will show us to ourselves. Art shows us who we are and how we would, how we would will our lives to be. So before I finish with Roseanne, I just want to reiterate what Pesha, you and Khan both touched on, which I think is, is critical. 
Neither of you used the word healing, but that is something that comes to mind when I think about how you walk in the world. Another is this idea of work that is generative, meaning that something that in essence is there in potential manifests as a result of putting things in motion. And the creative process is a very practical, often disciplined act of putting things in motion that is generative. And finally, we often live in a world where we are in front of each other, but we don't see each other. And one of the terrible consequences of that is at the root of of much of, I think, the upheaval we have. And you both have told stories that are about revealing and opening eyes and listening in ways that are mutual and affirming and respectful, which is in stark contrast to the the, uh, I, me, me yelling that sometimes has occurred in, in recent times. Thank you both for that. So, Roseanne, you have the last word. <laughs> well, to talk about meaning, you know, we're in this dual moment of both mourning and of revolution. And I think art can reveal the meanings of those things. You know, Bill, I often don't use the word healing because sometimes for me that indicates that you can't see what happened. I like to use the word mending because when you mend, you can see the stitches, right? <laughs> And scars, right? So we don't want to cover up this moment. This is this is a moment when things really are at a tipping point of change. So in that morning, I think artists are going to reveal the anger that all of these folks did not have to die. And I think in this moment of revolution, where the artists are going to um, reveal the joy that that brings and the meaningfulness of change. I, I think artists will be able to help us see that. Well, I don't know about you guys, but <laughs> sitting, here, <laughs> sitting here and listening to, to the three of you, you know, people talk about bottling stuff. I, you know, I, I, I'd like to, I'd like to bottle this. Uh, the essence of Diva Cats. Thanks for asking us to do this, Bill. It's, it's absolutely. Fine. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And thanks to you three for your incredible work and to the behind the scenes partners like the St. Louis Regional Arts Commission, who are providing the everyday support that it takes to build a healthy community arts ecosystem. Finally, thanks to all of you out there who are listening to and commenting on this journey we are taking in search of the people and stories that hopefully will help us reform, reconstruct, and maybe even reconcile our fractured world. Change the Story, Change the World is a production of the Center for the Study of Art and Community. It's written and hosted by me, Bill Cleveland. Our theme and soundscape for each episode is created by the incomparable Judy Munson. And finally, a shout out to our growing community of listener friends that is in essence created by you each time you tune in, each time you share, each time you subscribe. So thanks for that and stay well. Adios. Adios.